Hi, this is Scotty. I can't take your podcast request this morning because I fucked off to Miami for the last couple of weeks and I'm like just doing lines of coke in a Lamborghini reliving my Miami Vice fantasies. But do leave me a message and I'll surely get back to you sometime a week from uh, next year. Really? Really? You're going to blame the fact <laughs> that we are on February the 14th <laughs> and have not yet recorded in 2024 because I went to Miami for one week. <sighs> Happy Valentine's <laughs> I love you, John. I missed you, honey. Did, did you get the big bunch of flowers and the chocolates I sent you? Yeah, no, you must have sent them to someone. Oh, yes, I must <laughs> some have sent them to some, someone else I like, yes. <laughs> well, as I said, this is the first time we have been together in 2024. Now, this beginning of the year, I can't even remember anymore why we weren't recording. Uh, then you were away a bit, I think, and then we had a, some technical difficulties a couple of weeks oh, ago. that's right, yeah. Where, for some reason, and I still have it now, that fa- FaceTime will not... You know, what normally happens is I record on my phone and my Mac is... Um, I speak on FaceTime on my Mac, but FaceTime just stopped ringing on the Mac. I've got it open right now. It still didn't ring um when you when you called for for some reason every mess all messages comes through everything else comes through but there we are uh well so, so today i now have two phones one with the facetime on for uh, uh speaking to you and one for for recording but anyway so anyway but what has happened now john is possibly you know we have six or seven listeners who have decided that they're 2024 is looking really good because they didn't have to listen to anything uh, <laughs> from us. And um, some poor sod who thought that Valentine's Day was going to be a day of love <laughs> now ends up with having to listen to us two dipshits uh, talk about stuff. So, John, no pressure. This better be good. This better be good today. So, firstly, you know, how has your, your, your year been so far? And, you know, how are you going to stun us today? with your um, wisdom, uh, wit, and repartee. Uh, well, you remember this thing I've been talking about that I've been working on for, like, I don't know, uh, kind of since May of last year? Still can't entirely I talk about it. You still can't talk, no, you still well, no, can't talk about it. Much closer so. because, you know, uh, we're, we're trying our, our first QA allocation, trying to, to allocate it today. But what I can say... What makes it complicated? And I've, I've been at Netflix for eight and a half years now, uh, and uh, this project involves Android, you know, iOS, and TV, and so it's it's a big project, and it's it's a long running thing, and and it's something that we have to do very very carefully. In some ways, it's replacing something that we've had, but but really replacing something we've had so we can build some completely new experiences. So it's it's been lots of fun to work with. But just to be able to do a first allocation, it's it's kind of a chicken and egg game. You have to make sure that, that TVs have a new version of the software before we can start allocating phones. Um, and and good old, <laughs> he exhales, good old Apple. <laughs> Uh, you know, we had to we had to stop our, our release that was going to provide the pool of, of users uh, which normally should have, you know, we, we released a new version of the App Store. It's what had all the fixes, all the things, all the, the results of all our, our last testing. And we were starting an uptick and in, in, in a crash that we were like, what is this? What is this? What is this? We have no idea. We have no idea. And then we had to like really go down and into the bowels of bug snag, buck reports, looking at, at breadcrumbs, seeing what was happening. And then, and then, yeah. Uh, 
tried to figure out what was causing it. And then we started theorizing, tried a bunch of things. Finally, we got to a reproduction case, and we determined that it was a, a, a something that Apple started doing. If you compile an Xcode 15 and link against iOS 17 uh, frameworks, there's an assertion, a runtime assertion, and not just in debug. It will the Apple will crash your app if you do this thing, which you know is not an uncommon thing to do that we've been doing. It's not a legal API, nothing of of the sort. It's just the use of a lazily allocated view controller that's presented in a sheet. And there are cases where you could, you know, do the the monkey triple double tap to kind of cause the the sheet to be you know created and then deleted and you know and then presented again. Blah blah blah. Um, we don't know why somebody would have done it unless they were just kind of monkey tapping. Some people do, or maybe they have a really slow phone, or so, we don't know. We don't know why or how. But anyway, we we found the fix. We submitted a new release, and now we're kind of holding off to see how long it will take for Apple to to allocate it. And what makes things a little bit dicky is that a little bit tricky is that we've got some other things where we're having some some quiet periods. Um, so we have to kind of time our allocations, especially for something big like this. So, you know, that, that gives you an idea that it's not a vaporware project, but it's, you know, one of those things where it's like, wow, you know, we're really working hard to, to get everything in place. Um, and I will tell you more about it when I can, but I can also share some other kind of deeper technical stuff with Swift UI and other things that I learned in the last couple of weeks, should you like, but I would like to give you the opportunity to say, John, no, I'm completely uninterested. I want to, uh, Talk about how I, you know, improved my suntan and knowledge of Art Deco architecture. Uh, well, I think I will go first, but I am interested in the Swift UI stuff, so we'll just we'll just break it up. We don't want to give the audience too much of a good thing in one go, so yeah, we'll uh, right. we'll just exactly. In. Uh, my knowledge of Art Deco architecture is a lot more than it was because I did a very good um, Art Deco architecture tour of uh, Miami South Beach, uh, which was. Far more interesting than it sounds, I assure you, but probably not relevant for this podcast. Maybe I'll set up an Art Deco Miami podcast (laughs) (laughs) uh, and and record that once every seven months as well. yeah, it's been um, a strange, not strange, uh, the client project that I'm mainly working on is in a like a bit like yours, really. It's coming to a, a point where it just needs to go forward and sort of like trying to iron out stuff and get it through QA. Um, it's got multiple facets to it, a bit like yours, uh, you know, with uh, server-side and iOS and, and Android, although the Android OS stuff doesn't really have to worry about each other too much at this stage. Um, and so, yeah, so it's just been really... It's one of these... Uh, and you probably find this yourself with yours when you're dealing with lots of moving parts um and all those parts can have different statuses and depending on those statuses different things happen testing even developer testing before you even get to qa it's just very time consuming because every time you want to test something you need to make sure that all of the the factions are in the correct state that you want to test. And then when something fails or doesn't go quite right or whatever else, you need to get everything reset. And sometimes resetting things has its consequences, so you have to start from scratch. Or, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm waffling a bit, but the point is it just eats up time. And uh, so it seems that it's, it amazes me now we're here on you know, the 14th of February as we're recording this, so what, six weeks into the year. Um, uh, it doesn't feel like we've made a lot of progress. We've the fact is we've done shitloads of testing and proven a whole bunch of stuff and wiped out a whole bunch of bugs. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it just, it just, it just eats up time and, uh, to make this work, which consequently also means, um, 
you know, because it's been a very busy time. I've done virtually nothing on Moneywell so far this year at all, just just tiny little bits, which is really incredibly frustrating. So uh, I think the beginning of my year has been... Um, been frustrating. Now, the good thing is that, you know, this this stuff from the client is going to start shipping very soon. Uh, we, too, are hoping to hit the full QA cycle next week. Um, well, QA are doing some stuff. They'll give me some time to hopefully put my eyes back on Moneywell uh, for a little while. And assuming we make it through QA over the next few weeks, then we can start releasing this stuff I've been working on for, again, probably over a year um, on, on this here. But it just, just the way that, uh, you know, uh, things just soak up time has been quite you know relevant to me at the at the start of this year uh, and i'll have a few things i want to say about money well as well and what that means for not looking at it but i am going to um come back to you first of all and say john have you got anything really technical about swift ui you'd like to share with us I do. I have two things. So here, you know, there's a number of Swift UI uh, screens that I, I built for this project for, and I, I've talked a little bit about them. And I've kind of hinted that it's great. It gets you really far until it, you kind of hit a wall and then you're like thinking, I know how to do this new UI kit. Why am I not able to do it or understand how to approach it? And most of the times it's been, well, you just have to know how to ask the right questions. And other times I still think you just, you can't do certain of the things. And this is kind of a, a, a one of those details of polish, but they're important to me. So, you know, because this, ha- you know, we have to do our app and it has to support how many languages? A lot of languages, 30, 34. Um, and some are more expensive than others. And, and and then we also support, you know, we respect preferred content size. So on a lot of screens, and this is one in particular, which was something for feature education. So this is a brand new feature and we really need to people to, to, to make them aware that it exists. And we did something I think is pretty clever in that we did a, a type of animation, uh, which... Uh, it was authored in 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 Premiere, you know. It's so it's just a, a flat two D animation, but with lots of gradient blends and so on and so forth. This type of thing you couldn't do with Lottie. It's actually a video, and we are serving it out through our our video streaming infrastructure, which is great. It's wonderful, you know. Uh, it it does all these all, all all these things, and it was designed very cleverly so that it doesn't have. Um, anything in the UI that ties to a specific language. You can use one asset that we used in, in however many languages, and then you have below it a bunch of bullet points talking about what it is. Now, to fit three bullet points and a video that is aspect ratio one to you know one point six across should be no problem for for most languages. On even on smaller phones, you may have to adjust the type a little bit. But as soon as you translate into some languages, it has to scroll. And then of course, as soon as you have larger uh, font sizes, of course you're going to scroll. So to make something visually you know obvious that there's more to see below. You have to you have to do something. So a common technique, which I borrowed from a prior project, which I borrowed from what I saw on the web, is to put like a little gradient blend over the bottom of your scroll view. And I made a reusable component for doing that where you could set the start and end colors to match the background. And it was just a, a UI, you know, it was just basically a UI scroll view delicate method, you know, uh, that would just basically determine whether the content that was being displayed required scrolling and if it did it would show that you know to show that overlay and hide it if not and on scroll it would it would hide it as you're scrolling so you're not being disturbed but when you get back to the top it would add that little gradient on top of it so it was something that was not hard to do but it was possible to do in UI kit just because 
you have that level of control. You know, the whole ethos of, 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 of UIKit is understand exactly all the things you can tell it to do and then do those things. In Swift UI world, you have to, you know, you're basically using uh, uh, geometry readers to be able to figure out how big something is after the fact. And then once you know after the fact that a layout pass has taken place, it will tell you how big something is. And then based on that, you can hide and show things. And that's good. But then what we, what I found, at least, and this is with the help of a colleague who's, who's you know, much further along in Swift UI than I am, and then like really far along. Uh, and, and he said, well, you can't really do it in that way. And, and this is what we kind of have, this is the best I, I know how to do it. And, and the, the, the problem is that basically you're, I, I don't know how to describe it other than the fact that it becomes possible to scroll, even though there's nothing that needs to be done. Like it, it, it's the scroll view thinks it can scroll because you've had to kind of cheat it a little bit to say that it's the, the length of the scroll area plus the length of the, the, the gradient blend that you need to have that you show or hide. And so it's not a big deal, but it's not, not quite as, as perfect, at least in my mind, which kind of annoyed me. So whatever I got over myself and realized that the, the benefits still outweighed things. And, and there was something where I found that's like, okay, this aspect of it is truly and, and well and truly much better. And that has to do with how you deal with preferred content size where, uh, you know, most of the elements are, have a lot better accessibility traits and, uh, and capabilities built into it, um, particularly as concerns layout, because you can basically do a lot of things to be able to say the minimum size for this is this, but let it grow. And you can even cap the, the how, how big it grows. So you can basically allow it to expand, but within reasonable bounds. And, and I find that really easy. And I thought, okay, this is great. This is so much easier to get it. But then a test that I usually do for, for seeing how well it works is I will, on my control panel, I'll swipe down for the top and I have on my control panel, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the ability to adjust the, the preferred content size, jack it up to the full largest accessibility sizes. And we've really gone to great uh, pains to make sure that our app reacts right away. I think I've, I've <laughs> at various points <laughs> thrown shade at Instagram, which would just basically quits the app as soon as it changes me. It's kind of embarrassing. And ours in, in, in almost every campus I know of kind of reacts right away. And I think it's, it's, it makes testing a whole lot easier. Plus, it's just it's a little bit of, of, of that great design polish that we strive for. And I could not figure out how to make that happen. In fact, in general, m making Swift UI views, forcing a layout always seemed like a bit of a mystery until you understand there is just one very simple way of doing it is that any view can have an ID associated with it. And if you change that ID, that's how you force a layout. And what that ID is can be anything. And, and it makes sense why it is, because usually Swift UI views want to be bound to some, uh, you know, some struct, some object, uh, which is, is identifiable. And, and if the identity of it changes for whatever reason or is hashable and the, the, the hash values are changes for whatever reason it changes because you've, you've modified it somewhere else, it forces the layout pass. And so this great technique that was taught to me is that there, uh, is our environment variables environment, you know, I don't know what you call them, you know, uh, view modifiers that you can attach and environment can be something like what the preferred content size is. And so you can set the ID of your view to be the, the identity of the, of the preferred content size. And that's really great for, for static content stuff. You're not mutating in any way, but you know, you basically 
created your view model and you set the values that you want for your title and your headline and your your bullet point one and so on and so forth. And so you're not changing the, the value of the text, but you want to force a, a layout because the preferred content size should should do it. Now, it doesn't happen for you automatically, but it's one of those great, you know, essentially two lines of code, one to specify the, to, to capture the preferred content size in your variable, I'm sorry, in your environment modifier, and the other one to be able to say on change of it. Uh, and or to set that to, rather to be the ID. So the ID would be, you know, environment dot, you know, environment accessibility. I forgot what else, but preferred content size, which are, is a constant, which will vary according to what size it is like large, medium, extra large, accessibility, extra, extra, extra large, whatever. Just behind the scenes, there's a unique identifier for each of those different uh, states. And it, and that just worked. It was great. And I was like, wow, perfect. So th that that is in, in contrast to doing it in UI kit, where the way to do it is you basically in your view controller, in your view, somewhere along the line, you have to listen for notifications. Or if you're, you know, extra clever and you want to do whatever publish pub sub, you can do it that way. Um, uh, but you still have to listen to those changes and then and then call some method which forces a reloading of the views, however you wish to do that. Um, and so that's that's many more lines of code. So uh, there there goes my my love and and uh, yeah, mostly love of Swift UI. I hope that was possible to follow. <laughs> yeah, I think I followed most of it, but yeah, it, it's quite hard doing UI description of issues in audio um, in, when you're trying to do it. But yeah, but I, I think okay, I'm, I'm not going to dig back into any of the um, the nuances of what you said there because it's. Um, too nuanced. Firstly, I don't think I, uh, you know, would have anything to to offer of any benefit, other than I think you know. To me, I just pick up high level. You know, you said overall, you still think Swift UI is worth the pain compared to going back to um, UI Kit, and I, and I think you're probably right. We're currently uh, rewriting one of Moneywell's um, major um, screens. The way you set actually you know, the key to money was always said is the way you set up your budget. Um, probably the most complicated screen in Moneywell, um, and yeah, I'm going to be blunt now. The current Moneywell has loads of issues and bugs in it that have just been there for years and they're just too hard to fix. And so we you know, we've grappled this and we're doing it all in Swift UI. And let's say it has been a a challenge. Um, Matt has mainly been doing this, not me. So he's been mainly dealing with the challenge. Uh, but I think, you know, it's it's always it's often hard to know how much of this is a challenge and how much of this is I just don't know the right way yet. Um, but equally, I think we can sometimes forget that sometimes doing this stuff in UIKit would have been, or I mean, we're doing this on the Mac, so it would have been AppKit. It, it would have still been hard. It would have just been a different hard. <laughs> and I think, you know, but but there's lots of ways, I, I think, with familiarity of the past, we, you know, oh, this doesn't work in UIKit, but I know how to get around that. You just write this override or whatever else. And some of it's that way in there. But I think it's, um, yeah, this stuff is, it, I think there's no point, at no point, even though this stuff is, is machine, unless you actually totally hit a roadblock where you cannot do it, and even then, I think a lot of times you can still definitely do stuff in Swift UI if you just drop to UI Kit for one little bit inside of it, and it supports that reasonably well. Um, you know, there's just no point trying to go backwards on this because it's the only way we're going forward. And so we might as well just keep working at it and get around all the wrinkles and the issues and, and get it done, basically. Hmm. Coolness. Well, Scotty, could we shift gears a little bit and and um, 
talk about uh, about backends for for you know mobile apps. John, if you want to talk about backends, I'm happy to talk about backends. I would love to talk about backends with you. And also, I wanted to point out that the title of this show could be "Still Hard, But a Different Kind of Hard." Happy Valentine's Day from your old friends. <laughs> Hopefully Sam will be taking notes as he's editing. Yes, exactly. And um and yeah, that we'll see what he comes up with for the title because I leave it up to him. But uh, he he does enjoy your suggestions. Okay, very good. So anyway, um as a you know, devoted listener of the, the, the show may know, my child is, has started in college. Um and uh he's at Stevens, which is an engineering school in, in, in the East Coast in Hoboken across the, the river from New York. It's um very well known in the New York area, not 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 as well known out in California, but he's in a particular program where uh, y- you are encouraged to 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 build projects. They could be mechanical, they could be software, they could be both. They could do all those different things, and, and it's really good. It's kind of cool. It's, and uh, he was, you know, at, he, he was asking me, you know, uh, for for some guidance and help on things, and and he says, "Look, this is something that you can help me with, fat old man," because every time I, you know, try to get your you know, if I, I dare not ask you any question about about calculus because you barely know algebra, so you're of no use to me. But you know, uh, you seem to know a little bit about building software. And and they were working on a project. I think it was a, a really nice idea. And the thing I like about it is you're basically saying, look, we're going to be doing this all the time. So we're going to build something. And how you build something, whether it's software or hardware or some combination, there are commonalities to it, you know, involving kind of figuring out what it is you're going to build, what you're not going to try and tackle, you know, how to where to put you know your effort and, and where not and what the most important aspects of it. And so I think I was able to give some good help with that, but it came down to it where, you know, it, uh, most of the software engineering is being done by somebody else on the team um, uh, because, you know, my child wants to do aerospace engineering and not necessarily software engineering, but who knows, we'll see that over time. He, he kind of like at various times when I tried to, to get him into software engineering, um, he liked it and then then. You know, when the, the when the when he saw the the thing for the Vision Pro, he's like, "Oh my God, this is a computing platform I want. I don't care. I'm going to learn how to do it." And Swift UI looks pretty good. And he he did the hacking Swift UI course, which has been great. All those great things. But anyway, uh, and what I basically said to him is like, you know, for this thing that you're wanting to do, you have to remember that you're asking somebody to to use something that they probably don't have on their phone, and 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 also they're, you're asking them to do something where their ability and willingness to do it is that they kind of can whip out their phone, do it in a very, very fast interaction and move about their day. And I'll, I'll spare the details of what it is. Um, uh, but in, in, in essence, it has something to do with, 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 you know, students doing a favor for somebody else, kind of a, doing them a solid in some way. So it's, they, they simplified the problem about trying to say, are these, th- are there, is there something you could do for someone else that would be really a, a doing them a solid, a really nice thing and just not building money into it or so on and so forth, but just basically saying, hey, you were over here. Can you pick this thing up for me or you do this, that type of stuff. It's a, so it's a, as much a social experiment as is in software. Now, why am I going into all these details? 
is because I what I said to him is like, look, kids are staring at their screen all the time. Social dopamine is a thing. And so when you ask and, and do something, you do a favor, it's always nice to have a nice animation that kind of says, thanks so much. This is great. Yes, I can do that. Or no, I can't do it right now. And so you pass it to somebody else who might be able to do it. So the interactions, I think, are the important thing and writing it as quickly as possible is an important thing. And, and Swift UI is very, very good for that type of thing because he understands things like, you know, you, you can write a model of about, you know, just, you know, about what you need to build, what data may already exist on the phone, so on and so forth. And then you need a kind of a real-time system for doing it. And I said to him, it's like, yeah, you know, don't worry, but you know, focus on these interactions because those are the harder parts to get right. Find yourself a designer if you possibly can. Spend some time talking to, to actual students, asking them questions about this, because um, that's more important and, and more complicated to get right than, than the, the actual coding is, because coding has gotten so much easier now, and it's largely true. But then it comes down to, well, where will you store all this stuff? And I'm thinking, okay, you know, back before I joined Netflix, back when I was doing Hack Days, you know, on my own, there was this great thing called Parse. And I know you'd mentioned it the other day. And because you'd mentioned it, I thought, okay, well, you know, does that still exist? So, uh, and it, it still looks like it's going strong, like that the whole thing was open source. I was even searching to be able to say kind of is, is the good alternative to, to what I've heard other people use like Firebase or, or, you know, do I even need to have something? Couldn't I just roll my own? I know enough about Node and so on and so forth. But looking at it, uh, it really seems like it's still a pretty good alternative. And so my long, you know, long question, which you'll give me a short answer to is, have you tried it? Are you using it? Do you think it's a safe thing for, for these type of, of small side projects or hack day projects, or is, is it not? Yep. Honeywell uses Pass as its coordinating backend. Oh, nice. Uh, yep. So, um, so we have shipping products with it. Um, because of the nature of the way Moneywell works, we, um, uh, about keeping all your data locally we don't use it necessarily as a data store um we use it as a coordinator uh so for an example of what do we use it for uh, when, when we use it as a coordinator we use it with unidentifiable data so for example uh in in many you can have scheduled transactions um and they get created by the client on certain dates times certain triggers but of course in a multi-device world you only want to make sure yeah, you, 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 if you start up two devices at the same time or within a short time of each other and they haven't yet synced with each other, you've got a chance that they, they could both try and create these scheduled transactions. Uh, so, so scheduled transactions have codes in them, you know, identifier codes in them, and we use paths at the back end to the, the client says, when did you last do this one? When did you last do this one? Oh, you've done it. I won't bother. It'll come over and sync in a minute, that type of thing. Um, however, uh, we are pushing now using PARS more because when we introduce banking to MoneyWell over the next few months, uh, we need to have proper MoneyWell accounts. Um, you know, MoneyWell, we have a login to do that and control some of the coordination of that. And so PARS is providing all of that infrastructure for us as well. Um, and yeah, for what we've used PARS for, um, we also use PARS for a whole bunch of tools for license management for the old MoneyWell for issuing licenses out and that sort of stuff. And it works, yeah, works really well. We use, um, I've said this before, I think, and I've put a link in here. So we use hosted PaaS, so we don't host it ourselves. We just, um, we use Back4App, which is a PaaS host. They do free accounts for 
you know, tiny little projects. Uh, we have a paid account. Um, yeah, so we don't even manage PARS on the back end. We just use PARS as a service effectively. Um, and yeah, works very, very well. Very pleased with it. That's really cool. That's I will definitely look forward to the link because that back for app is something I hadn't heard of. I forgot what I had found. I just knew that they exist. Which just shows you don't listen to me because I've spoken about it at least five times yes, on the but show. Yes, that was but so many months ago, Scotty. That was like, you know, three love things. And, and I don't know whether you put that in the show notes. I just All I remembered is that there are hosting services. So when I searched hosting services for Parse, you know, there was a, something that uh, hit earlier in the search results. But see, I would rather trust, you know, your experiences and to find out what you use so I know to use something else. Um yeah, back for app have been good. I mean, I'm pretty sure they, they still do yes, they do do free free um uh accounts for I can't remember what the limitations are, but they're they're for yeah. a college project they're probably fine. Um and then um yeah, and their um support is very, very good. Uh, they answer email support normally within a few hours. They have a, a Slack group where you can just ask questions and one of the engineers normally answers it. Um so yeah, it, it, it's good. And of course, PARS itself is open source. Um, of course, PARS was a Facebook project, which was massive for a while and then got dropped. But the open source community did pick it up. And although I would say it's not, you know, it's not out there as like a number one back end at the moment, but it's still well looked after enough that um, we have no qualms in using it. And we have the, the uh, you know, the security that if, back for up for one day decide they don't want to do this anymore um you know we can use the open source paths for you know even if we have to host it ourselves as long you know until we find another solution or decide that you know we can do it or whatever else so yeah it's good well yeah that was the other thing it's like and so i'm, I'm curious about something because if i understood correctly an option of doing it is you can get a pre-made docker image you you know start that up you make your changes you run it live you know on your on your desktop uh and then you deploy it and so is that pretty easy to to do because I, the other thing that i was wondering about is like yes i can put together back all my knowledge of how i of how to do this because i'm fairly familiar with it but for somebody who's like you know wants to test something they can't really spend a day coming up to speed on figuring all that if it's like a one week project um, is is it super easy to to set up or not? Um, I have had pars running locally in a Docker image. Yes, um, you can just download a Docker image and run it. Uh, in fairness, I don't push that very far or play with it much because we have a pretty strong fundamental. I won't say policy, but sort of approach that you know. Uh, we're independent. We're a small company. There's three of us. We like our sleep. Don't run anything that requires us to know that servers are up 24 hours right. a day. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, with banking, that might become a little bit different. But, um, you know, one of the things of uh, we do know that with hosted bars is, yes, we may get a bug, we may get a problem or whatever else with our code. But the server is always going to right. be running. Someone's always going to be running our right. server exactly. for us. We don't have to do it. Someone's always going to be updating the whatever version of Linux or Docker right. or whatever mm -hmm. it is running on. And um, so we don't push it that very far because, really, we don't have time. We don't have the skill set. We're just not that interested. Um, and we can reasonably comfortably uh, sleep at night knowing that our servers are probably running. 
So in other words, so wait, then one last question on this. So can you set it up so that if you just push it to a Git endpoint, it will deploy it and you don't have to run the Docker? I mean, that, that's in some ways I'd, I would, that would be happy enough to do it that way. That's how I remembered, what was it called? Heroku, how it used to work? When you wanted to, to, to you know, deploy a Rails backend, for example? So Pars has several ways of working at it. Um, basically, it's an object store, first and foremost. So, um, and so basically, it's about retrieving objects through queries, updating and changing those objects are the main point of it. Now, you can either do that through a simple REST API. So you can just do it all through REST. Um, PARS has an SDK, so you can download into your iOS or Mac app the SDK, which basically gives you, well, let's call it your customer object there, and you just change it, and it deals with all the sending it backwards and forwards to the back end. You don't even care, um, which, which we, use, we, we use some of that. And you can, in which case, for those cases, there's nothing to deploy because it's all client-side, and you just set the... Um, uh, and you just set your your model up basically in the pars, either in code or you can either do it in code or you can do it in the the pars backend. Uh, there are server side scripts you can write, um, and again they can be uh, in a Git repo, and then you you can push the repo to pars. I don't I don't know. There may be a way of automatically just deploying straight from Git, but we've not looked at that because we don't mm-hmm. we don't use that. Yeah. Uh, I'm forgetting um, on it. So if you don't want to do the cloud, if you just want to get a parse server up there, I guess that's the right. You can you can define your your models. It's at runtime. Right? You can define your models in code um, right. as long as you set security up. Right. Uh, the way we're using it, we just go on to the model generator, the model screens on the pars ui and oh, just right. do it on yeah, the back yeah, end and then that. copy it over yeah uh, yeah so it depends what you're doing yeah right yeah, i mean okay. you could now you could create i mean back it's an object store you can create randomly brand new tables of objects just in code without even caring if you want right. to set the security up to do that yeah right got it all right well that's i i appreciate that because you know certainly for the child but also kind of you know you know how it is in the back of your mind you have these ideas and and it's nice to see that there is an option for something where you wouldn't have to care about it about a back end and and know that it, you're not kind of painting yourself into a corner and that there it's it's become such a commodity it's still amazing to me it's like <laughs> how i would have killed for this back in memory minor days and and every now and then i think yeah there's certain things i'd like to do with with <laughs> with apple vision pro <laughs> even just taking some of my old memory minor libraries and pulling out the metadata and doing some fun things with it but um and yeah, because that's the other thing that Parse seems to do now is that in addition to just basically as an object store, you can also, it seemed like you can have a bunch of clients observe changes, observe and create changes on a single, you know, object and and get real-time updates, which you is can perfect have, for this type. You can have, uh, effectively, it's the same as an NS fetch results controller. You can have a live, right. a live query, which will ping you with changes anytime the results of that query yeah. would have changed. Yeah. Which, which yeah. we use as well. We use that within the... Um, uh, in our banking, because we're using, I'm, I'm not going to get all the details, but basically because the app pushes you out to uh, a website, you know, our own or a web server stuff to set up um, links to uh, financial institutions. And so you can then give it permission going through different banking APIs to get it to give MoneyWell permission to access your banks and then some stuff gets served back in our PARS server and whatever else. But MoneyWell itself just keeps a live query running on PARS and when all that back-end stuff is finished, it's, it spots that, you know, 
a record's been updated in PARS and says, okay, thank you, you've sorted it out now, we'll carry on. Um, yeah, yep. so yeah, it, it, that works well. And all that's done using, I'm assuming, using a WebSocket to keep the thing alive? Or, We're just using or the you know, PARS okay. SDK. You just set up a query in the SDK and you give it a delegate and say, call this method when uh, when I see a change on this query. Right, but you, uh, okay. but you, you don't know or care how that's being alive. I don't know or care how that. that's happening, no. It's just right. using the the parse query object to, right. from the yeah. SDK. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, or yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's other ways. The document, the other thing with parse as well, the documentation is pretty darn good um, mm-hmm. for most things as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's glorious. Cool. Oh, that's that, that. Well, and speaking of glorious, you know, we've been going on a long time, and I would say basically our listener today has really <laughs> taken one for the team. Hopefully they won't be in rotation, but I'm concerned that in the number of weeks that that we have not been recording, our listener pool, you know, has dropped so much that whoever got on is like is not going to be spelled for another time. They may have to put up with us another episode. I'm sure we're probably at the listener levels now that we could be on first name terms with all of them. Yeah. But there we are. So, John, if any of our beloved single-digit number of friends uh, wants to get in touch with us, uh, how should they do that? Well, you can certainly find me on uh, Threads as John Fox or on Mastodon as Jembe at Mastodon.social. Uh, that's Jembe like the West African drum, D-J-E-M-B-E. And, Scotty, if people want to... Um, you know, uh, talk to you about pastel colors and cocaine. Where might they do that? Well, I am open to conversations on all things, John, including pastel colors and cocaine on uh, Mastodon, where I am, macdevnet at mastodon.social. I remember I had to change it, and I can still never remember what it was. Well, John, it's been really nice to catch up with you. It's it's taken us uh, a number of weeks, but um, I think it was almost worth it. Almost worth it, yeah. Almost worth it. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, Hopefully we'll be back. It's quicker than six weeks, but we're not going to make any promises because then we can't fail. But uh, thanks for listening. And until next time, you take care. Thank you.